Well, uh, happy Easter. Let's do this together. Congregation, Christ is risen. All right, let's do that one more time so we'll be ready by our 10.30 so we're not embarrassed in front of our guest. <laughs> Christ is risen. Ah, oh, so much better. Amen. Amen. Think of the number of times and the number of languages that's been said across the globe by fellow believers this morning. I think of those meeting in underground churches in China. I think of those meeting all across Southern Asia and in India and in Russia. I think of those meeting in places that are they're quite nervous to meet this morning, such as Egypt and Libya and parts of Syria. I think of a meeting all across Western Europe, and now it's our turn to meet. Um, and how many times has it been said, and how many times has it been believed, Christ is risen? Well, let me open us up in a word of prayer, and we'll dive in together. Father, we thank You that You have been so kind to gather us again. Lord, it's the simple things that amaze me most in, in Your kindness. Things like allowing us to gather once a week. How kind were You to, to give us this opportunity? Uh, how helpful it is in the spiritual journey. How kind of You to, to give us wisdom through the ages to once a year stop and celebrate what the Passion Week means and the amazing truth of an empty tomb. Thank you for the celebration of Easter. Thank you what it and how helpful it is in our lives. Father, this morning, as we look at these accounts of the Easter story as recorded in the Gospel narratives, I'm most struck that none of us would believe any of this to be true if it were not for your incredible, gracious, kindness to reveal it to us. So we thank You not only this morning that it is true that Christ is risen, oh, but far, far more, much, much richer. We thank You that we believe it to be true. And so, Father, I pray that You would instill in us further belief this morning. That, that Father, You would give us more resolve to live like this is true and to proclaim this is true. And I pray, Father, that You would use it to continue to change us into the image of our risen Lord. We ask these things to You, Father. We ask them through the strong name of our risen older brother. And we pray now that Your Spirit would work indeed. Amen. I know I've mentioned to many of you before how the idea of resurrection for me was something I had to work through. Uh, there are many people who struggle with the question of could the resurrection have happened or did it happen, but by the grace and mercy of God, I never really struggled with that. I struggled to understand why does it really matter. I mean, I knew it mattered a lot because it's talked about all across the New Testament. I knew it mattered a lot because it's in every major creed. And I knew it mattered a lot because the most important Sunday we have on, an annual, on our annual calendar is Easter. So I, 
I knew that. But what I was missing is that the resurrection is not just a sweet add-on to the Christian experience. It is the end goal of our redemption. Let me say that again. Resurrection is the end goal. It's what everything is heading for in the idea of redemption. Christ Jesus, risen from the grave and from a bloodied cross, one, gives us assurance that the payment for our sins was accepted in full by God. And two, gives us hope of what our future will look like. For as Jesus is resurrected, so also we will one day be resurrected and He will be our reigning King. The idea of a disembodied state where we just chill somewhere up in the ether, somehow probably bored and disengaged, <laughs> that is not biblical. And it's not helpful. Our hope, our end goal, is to live forever on a resurrected earth, in our resurrected bodies, under the reign of our resurrected King. And whether we know it or not, every one of us, we are aching for that. And what causes us the most ache is we can taste it, but it's not yet fully there. Remember a few years ago, I was bragging to uh, Tim Hooser about how closely the, Coke of, the taste of Coke Zero resembles the taste of a, of a regular Coke. And he was willing to try it. And after giving one a try, I asked him what he thought. And in his typical, clear, yet blunt manner, Mr. Hooser responded, it tasted awful. You must have not had a real Coke in a really long time. Well, he's right. Let me suggest that so much of our discontentment in this life is that we as believers, can taste there's something more and I'm not getting it all. Well, let me tell you, praise God, this is not your best life now. Resurrection will be your best life. It is our final goal. This life prepares us. It's changing us. It's the cocoon that God is using to form us until we can finally enjoy the full fruits of final consummated resurrection. Well, the story of the resurrection uh, is, spent, is covered in all four Gospels. Every Gospel has a chapter on the, the, the crucifixion and a chapter on the resurrection. So for resurrection, you have Matthew chapter 28 and Mark 16 and Luke 24 and John 20. These are the resurrected, resurrection chapters. Well, I thought it would be helpful this morning, since we only have an abbreviated amount of time, to try to sew all those together. Um, in so doing, I'm hoping that we will see some themes. I knew there's no way we're going to have time to do all that in a comprehensive way. So we're not going to read all four chapters together. But in that handout, what I've tried to do is give you a chronology of what happened from the burial 
all the way to the resurrection and, and Jesus appearing to all the disciples in order and then put them and mixed together, sewed together the, the various gospel accounts. So we'll walk through those together quickly. We begin with the burial of Jesus, which is covered in, at the end of John 19 and in Matthew, at the end of Matthew 27. The body of Jesus, along with the body of those two thieves that were crucified with Jesus, was removed from the cross sometime Friday afternoon. Typically, the bodies would have just been heaved into a pit um, and they would have been set, sat there to rot. And indeed, had it not been for the sovereign working of God, that's exactly what would have happened to the body of Jesus. But instead, God orchestrated that a rich man named Joseph of Arimathea went and requested that the body of Jesus be given over to him, and he offered a tomb so that Jesus was able to be buried in his tomb. By God's sovereignty, Pilate actually agreed to this. So Joseph and Nicodemus, you remember Nicodemus from John chapter 3, the religious leader who visited Jesus by night, they took and prepared Jesus' body for burial. And this makes sense of the prophecy which was spoken 500 years prior in Isaiah chapter 53 verse 9 that says they made his grave with the wicked and with a rich man in his death. His grave was made for the wicked. That is, it should have, his body should have been thrown in the pit with all the other wicked who were crucified. And yet he ended up being buried with the rich. And that was Joseph. Judas hanged himself Friday morning. And so there's now 11 remaining. Of those 11, all scattered, except for John, as he was the only one present as Jesus was tormented on the cross. Strike the shepherd and the sheep will scatter was prophesied and exactly what happened. But the women, the women followers of Jesus were present for His death and they were present for His burial. We learn from Mark 15 that the women watched as Jesus was buried. They went home on Friday evening and began to prepare spices to anoint the body of Jesus. Now Nicodemus had brought somewhere around 75 to 100 pounds worth of spices, but they wanted to anoint the body of Jesus. They had to get their preparations done before sundown on Friday as that began the Sabbath. And to do any work on the Sabbath was forbidden. So they set the spices aside and waited for Sunday morning as that would be their very first chance to anoint the body of Jesus. On Saturday, while the women observed the Sabbath and the followers of Jesus were in hiding, the Jewish leaders were hard at work trying to get Pilate to get somebody to guard that tomb. There is a lot of irony here. First, it's ironic that the religious leaders remembered that Jesus had said He would rise in three days because His disciples seemingly wholly forgot those words. The religious leaders were nervous that the followers of Jesus would try to make Jesus look like He had been resurrected. 
And yet, the entire time we'll find out the followers of Jesus had totally forgotten His words. And so the religious leaders worked to get somebody to guard the tomb. Second, it's ironic because their very efforts to keep the idea of a resurrection from going forward actually helped in history to solidify the case for it as there's now even more witnesses and more trusted witnesses there in the soldiers. And lastly, recall, one of the major complaints that the religious leaders had with Jesus throughout His ministry was what? Was that He worked on the Sabbath, doing things like healing people. Now, in their anxiety, what are they doing? They're working on the Sabbath. They're working hard on the Sabbath to try to get somebody to guard that tomb. Isn't it comical? That dead in the grave, Jesus is still driving the religious leaders crazy about how they can properly observe the Sabbath. At some point on Saturday, a group of Roman soldiers comes to, quote, unquote, guard the tomb of God. Some point early Sunday morning, an earthquake hits. And it hits in the local area of the tomb. At the time of the earthquake, according to Matthew 28, an angel of the Lord descended and rolled back the stone and then sat on top of it as if to announce victory. Now there are a number of theories that account for the, what the resurrection accounts. There's a lot of theories that account for the resurrection accounts that also try to argue Jesus really didn't rise from the dead. My favorite, by far, false account is the swoon theory. This is what the swoon theory says. It says that, posits that Jesus actually never died. He actually went into a coma. <laughs> and sometimes, Sunday morning, according to this theory, he woke up with his lacerated side from the spear where they had slid him open with his uh, major, major wounds in his hands and his feet, with his lacerated backside, he wakes up, he neatly folds his grave clothes, folded his grave clothes, he rolls back to huge stone on his own from the inside, he overpowers a bunch of Roman guards, all of this before he goes and appears before his friends for a chat, and then takes a few long walks during the day as well, at no time seeking any medical treatment. That's comical. Instead, we believe an angel of God came down and rolled away the huge stone because Jesus, who was dead, had been risen inside. After the angels rolled away the stone, the soldiers merely observed what is happening. All they do is look up and see what's happening and what happens to them. Well, they pass out with fear. How awesome must the presence of God be that if by merely looking at the presence of angels, the top military in the world was rendered as weak as fainting goats. At some point between fainting and the next event, Matthew 28 tells us that the soldiers ran off to tell the leaders what had happened. And when they heard it, they paid the soldiers a whole lot of money to lie about it. 
in an attempt to squash this truth of the resurrection from ever coming out. Given the fact that we are gathered this morning, given the fact that thousands have gathered across the globe, given the fact that it is now 2,000 years later in a land that was virtually undiscovered at the time, and we just announced Christ is risen, I would say that they did not pay enough. Now early Sunday morning, the various accounts tell us that the women, they wake up ready to go to the tomb to take the spices to anoint the dead body of Jesus. Make sure you get this. The idea of resurrection was nowhere on their radar. Nowhere. They were on their way to work with a dead man's body. They knew nothing about the soldiers, and so they were concerned, and Mark picks this up in his account, about how they're going to get that big stone rolled away. Which means none of them which means none of the men were even willing to go to the tomb with them. Why? Because all of the men, male disciples, followers of Jesus are what? Hiding. Let's not fool ourselves to think the disciples were sitting around wondering if He would rise three days later. None of them ever considered those words. Unless God gives us His grace unless He shines His mercy on us, none of us will heed the voice of God. None of us will believe. The women get to the tomb and they don't see any soldiers because the soldiers are now gone. All they see is a stone rolled away. Well, since they knew nothing about the soldiers standing guard and, and uh, and they had known where Joseph's tomb was, and they actually watched as Jesus was buried. What's their immediate thought? You walk up to a tomb that you know the stone was rolled in front of, and now it's gone. What's your immediate thought? Let me tell you what was not their immediate thought. Jesus has risen from the dead. That was not on the radar. Instead... Mary Magdalene sees the stone rolled away and she bolts. She runs to tell Peter and John what has happened. And what she thinks has happened is somebody has come to steal the body of the Lord. We find this out from John's account in chapter 20. After telling them, after telling Peter and John what has happened when she finally gets there, they also head towards the tomb. Meanwhile, the other women proceed to go in the tomb. We're told in Luke chapter 24 that they go in the tomb and they did not find the body. Again, Luke is emphasizing they expected to find a dead man's body. But instead, they encountered angels. And they do what everybody does when they encounter an angel. They writhe with fear. They're told by the angels that Jesus is not there because He has risen, and this is said over and over, just as He told you. Just as He said He would. They're told to, told to go and tell the other disciples. Mark's account, which is actually Peter's telling of the story, says that they were told to go tell the disciples and who? Peter. 
They must have returned to tell, tell the disciples and told Peter that the angel explicitly mentioned him by name. And wouldn't this carry a lot of weight? Knowing that only hours prior, thrice, Peter had denied even knowing Jesus. And now all of heaven is claiming Peter. What a gracious and merciful God we serve. The women leave on their way now to find the disciples after they'd been told to go tell the disciples. And in the meantime, Peter and John, who are on their way to the tomb, they arrive at the tomb. John arrives first. He's sure to point that out in his account. But Peter enters the tomb first. Peter's sure to point that out in Mark's account. By the time they get there, the women are gone and the angels do not show themselves to Peter and John. Note that. That is not because the women... Uh, sorry. All they find in the, uh, in the grave when they go in are the clothes of Jesus. There are no angels. There's only what? Clothes of Jesus. Now why does that matter? Well, it's interesting. The women's account would not be allowed in any court at that time. That's just the way the laws work. you got to have not just one man, you have to have two male witnesses for an account to be established. So for the world, Peter and John were enough to establish that the tomb was empty. But for God Almighty, He withholds the angels standing there to those two men. And He gives the angels to the women. So the fact that the grave clothes are mentioned by Peter and, Jane, and John, I've always found interesting because it's not mentioned by the women. Now, I find that interesting because I know a little bit about how men and women work. Men would typically not observe clothes sitting there and women not observe clothes sitting there. So what does that tell us? Brothers and sisters, that tells us how in awe the women were of the angels. How in awe they were of what they were being told. All that Peter and John saw were grave clothes. Maybe this is enough for them to understand and believe the words of Jesus. And yet it was not. We find out they still do not believe. If God does not give us grace to understand and believe, we will not believe. Now Mary arrives back at the tomb, Mary Magdalene. Peter and, Jane, or Peter and John are gone. This is recorded in John 20 and in, in in Mar in Mark 16. She stands there and she's weeping. Mary is broken. According to Luke chapter 8, you'll remember that Mary Magdalene was a woman who was so messed up, so completely messed up, so evil, that seven demons found her and her messed up life is an adequate place to call home. We find that out because we're told in Luke chapter 8 that Jesus cast seven demons out of Mary. She had endured seeing Him tortured on a cross. Now the body is stolen. And she thought she would never be able 
to give him a final thank you. She finally drums up enough courage to peek in. In John chapter 20, verse 12, this is what she sees. And she saw two angels in white sitting where the body of Jesus had lain, one at the head and one at the feet. So she walks in, she sees two angels, one at the head and one at the feet. I think this matters because there's one other place in Scripture that we're told about a seat that has an angel at the head and an angel at the foot. That's the mercy seat. As recorded in Exodus and in Numbers, that's in your handout, we are told that the mercy seat has a cherubim on one side and a cherubim on the other. And recall, the mercy seat is the seat of atonement. The seat of propitiation. It was the mercy seat it was from, from the mercy seat that God spoke to Moses. Now keep going. Keep that in mind and keep going. John chapter 20, verse 13. They said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? And she said to them, They have taken away my Lord, and I do not know where they have laid him. Verse 14. Having said this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing, but she did not know that it was Jesus. And Jesus said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? Who are you seeking? Supposing him to be the gardener. If God does not reveal himself, we will miss him every time. She said to him, Sir, if you've carried away, carried him away, tell me where you've laid him, and I will take him away. Verse 16. Jesus said to her, Mary. And she turned. And said to him in Aramaic, Rabboni, which means teacher. Mary does not know it's Jesus until he speaks her name. But when he speaks her name, she knows. John chapter 10, what does Jesus say? My sheep hear my voice and I know them. Verse 17 Jesus said to her, Do not cling to me. I have not yet ascended to the Father, but go to my brothers. Go to my who? My brothers. And say to them, I am ascending to my Father and your Father. To my God and your God. Verse 18, Mary Magdalene went and announced to the disciples, I have seen the Lord and that He had said the things to her. Mary attempts to hold on to Jesus and to never let go. And Jesus responds that she has to let go. Why? Because He had not yet ascended. In other words, Mary, the time is closer, but it is not yet. Fellow believers, let us heed these words in hope this morning. The time is closer, but it is not yet. So, what is going on here? I think this is a beautiful picture of the Gospel. Now listen, only God would ordain that the first person to see the risen second Adam would be a woman who is tormented by Satan. 
Now just picture that. The risen second Adam. The first witness to the risen second Adam was a woman who had been tormented by Satan. Wasn't it the tormenting of Eve by Satan that caused judgment to enter the world to begin with? And now God speaks, not from the mercy seat of the temple, but from the ultimate mercy seat in the grave. And from the grave that once held the perfect atoning sacrifice of Jesus Christ, the second Adam. This was a declaration that the atoning sacrifice was done forever. And in so doing, God allows this broken woman to become the first witness of the gospel. What is the gospel? It is the good news that no matter who you are, no matter what you have done, there is mercy that flows out of the death of Christ. If you hear His voice, if you turn to Him and embrace Him for life, then His death, it's going to be counted as if it was your death. And His resurrected life is now counted as if it's your resurrected life. Mary leaves and she goes and she tells disciples, the disciples, ahead of her are the other women on the same mission. And we're told in Matthew 28, verses 8 through 10, that they're interrupted in their journey by the appearance of Jesus. They now become the second witnesses to the resurrected Lord. And again, Jesus asks, Go tell my brothers. The women obey Jesus and go tell the disciples. And the disciples still fail to believe. Luke 24 and Mark 16 records, records the fact that the disciples would not believe the women. Oh, there's irony here too. Remember, the fall occurred when Adam disbelieved the words of God and instead believed the words of Satan spoken by Eve. Now, there's a great reversal, isn't there? Now, the men fail to accept the very words of God by failing to believe His words are the ones now spoken by the women. As Paul writes in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, the natural person does not accept the things of God unless revealed by God. Again, unless God is gracious to open our eyes, we will not see the King of Kings. The day ends with Jesus appearing to two followers on the road to Emmaus, as recorded in Luke 24. Then we are told Jesus appears to Peter. It's also recorded in 1 Corinthians. And finally, that evening, Jesus appears to all the disciples except for Thomas. Thomas will finally believe eight days later when Jesus shows him his wounds. Thomas, like all the others who disbelieved, is chastised for his disbelief. We summarize with three themes. First, those who believe first are not those who we would have chosen. In Christianity, God triumphs, God's grace triumphs over human merit. In Christianity, God's grace triumphs over human merit. Second, faith or belief comes when God works to open our eyes. In Christianity, 
as seen so clearly in the resurrection story, in Christianity, faith is a gift. And finally, the story of Jesus will spread when one broken person goes and tells another broken person, Christ is risen. Congregation, Christ is risen. Congregation, Christ is risen. Amen.